Welcome back to Round 12, the podcast that will always be dedicated to growth, development, and motivational mastery. I am your host, Sensei Roger B. Hamilton. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of the Round 12 podcast series. Let's go get it. Turning pain into progress. An old Cherokee told his grandson, my son, there is a battle between two wolves inside us all. One is evil. It is anger, jealousy, greed, resentment, inferiority, lies, and ego. The other is good. It is joy, peace, love, hope, humility, kindness, empathy, and truth. The boy thought about it and asked, Grandfather, which wolf wins? The old man quietly replied, the one you feed. Never quit. The journey of a million miles. Chapter one. Crash. Benjamin Franklin was quoted as saying, a place for everything, everything in its place. My grandmother, Hattie, who we all called Mama Hattie, had a passion for order and cleanliness. Her large, meticulous apartment was a shining example of her experience as a maid and housekeeper. The symmetrical red brick duplex building was a comfortable suburban dwelling owned by her employers at the end of a quiet street in a quiet city in New Jersey. The year was 1960. The upper middle class city of Highland Park was the home to many wealthy families. The decorative homes with their perfectly tailored lawns, mile-high gables, and colorful flower boxes shined on the street like fresh money from a new bank. The Goldstein family, for which Mama Hattie was employed, lived only a few short blocks away. It was a beautifully sunny and warm fall afternoon. The bright orange, red, and brown leaves were quietly dancing. Bye, Hattie the tiny youngster said to his petite, copper, brown-skinned housekeeper and cook. Bye, baby, Mama Hattie said with a wide smile as she climbed from the front seat of the shiny new black Cadillac sedan. Bye, Miss Goldstein, she added enthusiastically. Good night, Hattie. The large-boned, dark-haired young woman from behind the steering wheel replied with moderate emotion. My thin, delicately built, 38-year-old grandmother closed the heavy car door behind her and turned toward the place she called home. Suddenly, the smile that brightened her face changed quickly to an intense frown as the large automobile drove away. In the air, the tree-lined street and the widely spaced homes that sat as though they belonged seemed invisible to Mama Hattie. Though her step was lively and maintained a significant spring for the end of the day, she still seemed unhappy somehow. I was four years old. As I watched her with great interest from inside the window of her home, I could see a woman who represented ultimate authority walking toward me. Boy, get your ass out of that window, she barked, no sooner than her first foot dropped onto the shiny hardwood floor. I quickly released the curtain and stood soldier still. Hi, Mama Hattie, I said innocently. Boy, go sit your ass down somewhere, all up under people, she added ferociously. I can't even come in the door without you all up in my face. 
as instructed, I scurried to the heart of the house to find a place where I wasn't a nuisance. Jacob, the little Jewish boy who lived next door, was visiting in the rear of the apartment. I joined him, and we resumed playing quietly together on the floor. Mama Hattie soon made her way past the kitchen and into the large pantry where we were playing. Hi, Hattie, the smiling little boy greeted. Hi, baby, Mama Hattie replied with a smile. Why don't you all go outside and play for a while, she instructed. Okay, little Jacob replied sweetly. And I simply turned and stepped toward the back door. Mama Hattie guided us both gently by the shoulders through the clean storm door behind us. Mama Hattie then began her evening ritual, which commenced with her aggressive bellowing toward my great-grandmother, Mama Anna. Mama, she yelled across the room. I told you not to be letting that boy be peeping out the window. That's all white folks want to see, little niggas peeping out the window. My great-grandmother, Mama Anna, was a timid, petite, round-shaped woman who hardly ever spoke. Her soft, wavy hair was almost completely gray and hung down to her behind from two long braids on either side of her head. She had extremely soft eyes and smooth caramel colored skin. The more Mama Hattie screamed, the more subdued and quiet Mama Anna became. By now, Mama Hattie had already taken out her full bottle of whiskey from the kitchen cabinet. You could hear a large gulp as she forced down her first taste of the day. Then she began the next wave of criticism toward her mother. All you sorry ass niggas make me sick. Ain't none of y'all worth a quarter. Mama Hattie was yelling at the wall as she hovered over her bottle, still standing in the kitchen. Suddenly, the little boy Jacob came running through the door with me right behind him. Mama Hattie never looked up. Then, like the smash of a wrecking ball through the house, crash! It was the penetrating sound of shattering glass. Jacob had run through the back storm door. He slammed it closed and I ran right into it. The clean, transparent glass from my mother's sto grandmother's storm door began falling all over me. One of the razor-sharp slivers of jagged glass sank deep into my forearm. I ran screaming into the kitchen. Bright red blood spurted over the spotless white linoleum floor. It seemed like more blood than one little boy's arm could hold. Mama Hattie gasped as she rushed toward me with a clean dish towel. She squinted and grimaced as she pressed the towel against the huge gash. Jacob stood there frozen in place with his eyes bulging from his head. Baby, run home and ask your mommy if she could run me and Roger to St. Peter's Hospital, please. Hurry up now, Mama Hattie urged calmly. Jacob took off like a shot from a pistol through the house, out the back door and across the lawn. God damn it, Roger. Mama Hattie whispered under my rhythmic, shrill screams. Mama Anna stood silently in the hallway, watching intently. Jacob was back in a flash, tugging eagerly on his mother's arm. What's wrong, Hattie? Jacob's mother asked nonchalantly. My grandmother removed the dish towel from my bleeding forearm just enough to show her and her employer's neighbor the wound. Roger done cut his arm all up. I need to take him to the hospital. Could I ask you to run us over there? Certainly, the brown-haired young woman answered. I'll bring the car around. You meet me out front. Yes, ma'am, Mama Hattie answered sweetly. As I recall the incident and the sheer trauma of it all, I remember less about feeling pain and more about the bright red color of my own blood. 
looking down at the open wound, hurt more than the feeling itself. By the time the three of us made it to the hospital, which was about 15 minutes away, I had slipped into some sort of trance. All I can remember is waking up back at Mama Hattie's house lying dead still, with large strands of suturing thread holding my skin together. The severe laceration covered the entire length of my small forearm. I was Mama Hattie's only grandchild at the time. My small family, which included my mother, Anna, her new husband, Bill, and her brother, Henry, and my great-grandmother, Mama Anna, offered me their finest brand of sympathy. Even Mama Hattie eased up a bit, though she was very angry that her glass had been broken. My name is Roger. This would serve as my first real experience with physical trauma, but it would be far from my last. I could hear Mama Hattie offering money to Jacob's mother for taking us to the hospital, and of course the woman refused. It's all right, Hattie. I could barely hear her say as they walked past the bedroom where I was stretched out. You sure? Mama Hattie asked again. I'm sure, she said. As soon as the front door closed behind her, I could hear Mama Hattie cussing. Her tone was slightly quieter than usual, but like a smoldering volcano, you never knew when she might erupt. Suddenly, the back door opened. My mother, Anna, walked in like she did every evening before going home from her job as a nurse's aide. She noticed that the storm door was lighter than usual. By then, Mama Anna had cleaned up all the broken glass. Anna! Mama Hattie screamed. Your child broke my glass. Now, what you think I'm going to tell Miss Goldstein when she see that glass is broke? Mama Hattie barely took a breath as she berated her daughter for my accident. Then I had to get that white lady next door to take his ass to the hospital. When Mama Hattie said the word hospital, my mother's eyes widened and her breathing stopped abruptly. I ain't going to be taking care of your child for you, she added. You should be here taking care of your own goddamn child. You had him. My mother rushed through the door and brushed gingerly past Mama Hattie. Her eyes danced in all directions, finding every corner of the room that my grandmother's eyes could not. My mother quickly found me lying completely still on the bed. Oh, Raj, she said aloud, as her eyes focused immediately on my elevated forearm. I could not respond but I could see the milk-white hat on her dark brown skin and her red and white striped uniform. She sat quietly down on the corner of the bed with the squeaky box spring and gently placed my hand inside of her own. Tears quickly filled her large eyes. She continued gazing at the painful-looking rip in my forearm. Now what you think I'm going to tell Miss Goldstein when she finds out that glass is broke? Mama Hattie started yelling again. Her words tumbled through the otherwise quiet maid's quarters. I told you, I'm not gonna be doing all your work for you. You wanted to go out and be a whore. Now you had the little bastard and you expect me to take care of his ass. My mother's chin dipped its way still closer to her chest. She knew nothing could calm Mama Hattie. You're 20 years old. You quit high school before you was even halfway finished. And just because you married Bill don't mean nothing. You're still ugly as hell and you still ain't no good. Suddenly, my mother's tears stopped flowing and she gazed into space. It was as if she could see the girls in high school taunting and teasing her as my body grew larger inside of her stomach. 
and the pretty young man who refused to have anything to do with her after he had done his hormonal teenage business with her. Her flashback had to have included the memory of Mama Hattie's continuous wrath. So she ran away with the first man who asked her, my father, Bill. He was seven years older than she was when they married, and I was nearly two. He wasn't my biological father, but he was the only father I ever knew. And though she didn't love him then, she felt she could learn to love him. At least he wanted her. He was a laborer who had also abandoned school in the third grade to work after his father died. But Willie Hamilton was a father to me in every sense of the word except for sharing my blood. Most importantly, he gave all he could of his meager resources. He was a good-natured and honorable man who always seemed to find something to smile about. Mama Hattie continued to yell, but my mother never answered. Suddenly, her older brother, my Uncle Henry, passed through the commotion. He walked quietly past the door of the bedroom. His smirk, as if part ridicule and part delight, had to have had an insult to her old and my new injury. Uncle Henry, Henry was hardly ever the subject of Mama Hattie's anger. Sometimes my mother's eyes seemed like windows to her troubled soul. Right then, you could see that she was far, far away, locked inside of her own private hell. It seems for my mother that hell was not a place you go to when you die, but one you escape from that you might live. Certainly, Uncle Henry loved me, his only nephew, and Mama Hattie loved me too, but in the way they loved everyone, only as sparingly as their many moods would allow. Henry was a strong and solid man, a diminutive five foot five inches tall with a thick frame and tight sinewy muscle. What he lacked in height, he made up with his fierce demeanor and almost superhuman strength. His accurate name could have easily been Hercules. Uncle Bebop, or Uncle Henry, or Bebop, as everyone called him, was extremely hot-blooded with angry eyes. No one called him Henry except Mama Hattie. Even my mother called him by his unusual and colorful moniker. Bebop's skin was a deep, dark bronze, yet his features were striking and handsome. He drank hard, played harder, and loomed large within the family context. A man's man in the old tradition, and a pretty fair auto mechanic. But as my mother knew all too well, her brother had never known much about the ability to be merciful. But then, based on the distinct difference in the way Mama Hattie raised him, he never really had to learn the importance of empathy. If one could have probed inside my mother's head and saw the images she remembered, they would see Bebop hovering over the solitary small heat vent in the bedroom they shared as young teens. My mother talked about the nights when Mama Hattie woke her to go outside at 2 a.m. on a school night to chop wood for the furnace. She lamented that she would get fully dressed and head shivering out into the cold in what was then a rural and shabby environment. She would chop the large pieces of cold and frozen wood into manageable smaller ones, load the rickety furnace with food for the constantly hungry winter fire, and trudge back into their old dilapidated house to find some reward for her efforts only to find her selfish brother hovering comfortably over their room's small heat vent. Even though she must have felt bad about those times, she was nonchalant when she told me how those experiences caused a hurt in her that never faded. 
Bebop didn't do me right, she said simply. My mother said that inside her head, she could still hear Mama Hattie yelling angrily at her. Leave Henry alone. If he's cold, let him have some heat. Mama Hattie seemed to see in her precious Henry all the strength and majesty that she had seen in his absent father. Although a blind man could see that Bebop's father never loved Mama Hattie in return. Uncle Bebop knew who his father was and the pain of distance and separation plagued him. In a passionate attempt to come to terms with their chasm, perhaps establish, and establish a father and son relationship, Bebop went searching for his father. The young teen found the man, but he's, he was apparently turned away miserably. The humiliation and pain could not have helped my Uncle Bebop become a nicer man. To Mama Hattie, Henry was a prince. All the love she could never give to the man who abandoned her, she seemed desperate to give her son. But alas, my mother Anna's father had sealed her fate. She, like Uncle Bebop, had a deep, dark, rich complexion, which represented the ripest fruit from God's great tree. But unlike her brother, my mother admitted that she had always felt ugly. In spite of her petite, perfectly shaped hourglass figure, or her firm yet soft muscle tone and gentle, pretty face, she was troubled. She was convinced by the society she lives in that the darker you were, the uglier you were. My mother was certain that she was as ugly as the bottom of her oldest shoe, and by Mama Hattie's estimation, useless and no good to boot. Whatever her father had done to Mama Hattie before he died, her life became punishment for crimes she herself never committed. Still sitting there on the bed, my mother appeared to be in another world. She was reflecting on the many times she had heard Mama Hattie's employers talking to Mama Hattie like a dog. She was thinking about how angry and hurt she felt when the Goldstein's little white children could be taken care of and gently treated by Mama Hattie but how evil she was to most everyone else. She knew that the reason Mama Hattie was going crazy about the storm window was because she couldn't afford to pay for it. Suddenly, my mother snapped out of it and broke her silence. Mama, why don't you ask those people for a raise? You've been working for them long enough. Bitch, you better stay out of my business. You need to worry about taking care of your bastard son and stay out of other folks' business. Yeah, mama, but you go to them folks' house every day and you cook all their food, you clean all their mess, and you don't get hardly nothing for it but this house to live in and you act like you're scared to live in your own house. This ain't my house. This them folks' house. And they tell me and mama to go. Then what we gonna do? You just shut up and pay me my money. Ultimately, it was 15 years that mama Hattie had worked for the Goldsteins without a pay raise. This meant that any attempt she might have to reach a higher station in life was severely challenged. Growth and development seemed impossible to her, and her kitchen cabinet was the only solace she knew, and it poured into a glass, which she poured at every opportunity into herself. Bebop followed her self-defeating trend almost to the letter. The taste of alcohol was the nectar of their lives, but my mother seemed to have more contempt for what she saw as wrong. Only she knew that there was hardly anything she could do about it. I don't care what you say, Mama Hattie fumed. 
you better give me some money to pay for that window, and I ain't playing neither. My mother Anna and my father Bill would collaborate to pay Mama Hattie so she could satisfy her demanding employers. Even I knew that the Goldsteins were not to be messed with. As I lied there listening to the angry exchange between the two women in my life, I suddenly pictured the time I had seen Mama Hattie cry after Miss Goldstein criticized some of her work. Hattie, the young woman yelled, I instructed you to take all the china from the dining room cabinet and to clean each piece. I see that you've left for the day and all you've done is dust the shelves and clean the glass. Tomorrow, I expect to see each piece of that china spotless. Though she was years younger than my grandmother, Miss Goldstein yelled at Mama Hattie like she was her child, and it scared me. Honestly, Hattie, she barked with exasperation. If you cannot follow instructions and do your work properly, perhaps I should find someone else who can. Mama Hattie began to cry and begged Miss Goldstein not to fire her. She pleaded for another chance to do things better. Miss Goldstein was dressed in perfectly tailored blue dress with large white buttons down the front, a matching pocketbook with white gloves clutched in her hands. She had a large black mole on the right side of her very pale face, and her dark eyes seemed to betray her smile. Whenever she showed her teeth to me as a gesture of kindness, it seemed more like a Doberman to be frightened of than a warm human smile. I always found myself staring at the large diamond she wore and the big shiny car she always drove up in. Miss Goldstein never ever sat down when she came to Mama Hattie's quarters. She only gave instructions and left. Mama Hattie would do most anything to keep Miss Goldstein happy. The irony of the situation was that Mama Hattie swore she had definitely cleaned Miss Goldstein's precious china. It seemed like this affluent family had our poor family and all our lives in the palm of their hands. And the best thing to do was to try not to piss them off. My father, on the other hand, seemed to me to bring a more worldly and proud ingredient to the family equation. Unlike my mother Anna, my grandmother Mama Hattie, and my fiery Uncle Bebop, who had all migrated from the most rural, underprivileged part of South Carolina, there were sharecroppers scraping out meager livings and were forced to work like animals in the blazing sun. Any Negro living there was not much more than an indentured servant, the memory of which was still bubbling inside of them all. But my father Bill had moved to New Jersey from North Carolina by way of personal initiative. Certainly not that his work ethic was stronger than anyone else's or that North Carolina was exempt from any of the injustice that controls poor people's lives. He just seemed to have less of a hard edge. He seemed more the happy gentleman, as though he instinctively knew something special about surviving in a world where other people, people with money and situation, hated you, if nothing but for the way you look. He was a lively, jovial, easygoing man with powerful working man's hands and sinewy, thick arms. His face was smooth and handsome, and his skin was light for a Negro, which generally meant he should be more acceptable to white folks. However, I don't think he felt any extra benefit from his complexion. I overheard him say to my mother in a light and dark conversation they were having one evening, White folks don't respect nothing but money. You can be as light as you want to be or as dark as you could be, he said. It don't make no difference. If you ain't rich, you just another nigger. 
He knew from experience that lighter than average skin is never light enough. One drop of black blood, as the saying goes, is all you need. And at four years old, I was often confused because it looked like to me that my blood at least was very definitely red. When you look at this story, the time in history, and examine the lives of those people involved, you cannot help but see and even feel a level of pain and confusion, which was for many people the order of the day. We like to think that we have made it past these challenging times and poison perspectives. For the sake of all of us, I certainly hope we have. Just in case, let's keep working to be our best in spite of the challenges before us. Living on Purpose The purpose of life is not to be happy. It is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate, to have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well. Ralph Waldo Emerson An individual's life, operation, method, and credo when presented for review must include personal inventory and clear perspective. After doing this work on myself, my determination to live a focused life has translated into a lifelong pursuit of personal excellence, impelling me to move forward in order to better myself and to surpass limitations that had appeared insurmountable in the past. Isn't that funny with the start I had? I cannot be contented with good enough. So I simply forced myself to keep pushing back against the outer limits of my abilities. A way of life is the term I have heard used to describe this. My passion to exceed is now based on internal qualities and not upon any desire to show off or show anybody up. True strength always comes from within and is not to be supported by any need to feel superior to somebody else. When I can feel this way at my best, then it matters little to me if somebody else was better at the time. Consequently, I always try to be in touch with my current place and position and perspective, so I know I'm giving quality. It is certainly not important to show others that I am better than them. It is to simply be my best self. This attitude of independence from both the disdain and admiration of others became a perfect basis for studying martial arts, which I began when I was 20 years old, as we've talked about before. I had always been interested in athletics, and as a wrestler in high school and college, oh my God, the thing I love most about school, and after studying at marketing at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, I yearned to find new ways to exercise my body. I felt the continuous need to do something physical and focused. The study of martial arts played a role in responding to challenges I was facing at the time. So in a moment of clarity, on a blank piece of paper, I wrote the words, Assault on Mediocrity. The three words have been the theme of my life since that day. My style has become do what you can do with you. I believe that finding excellence within yourself gives you the ability to then let the chips fall where they may in the parts of life you don't have control over. The discipline of karate called to my spirit. The study of martial arts exerts a quieting effect, helping the learner to become centered and to become the person he or she was meant to be. The whole point of martial arts at the master level is to learn to become focused and aware 
to take control over your mind, body, and passions rather than simply learning how to overcome an adversity. A perfectly aware person will see conflict situations developing and avoid them. True black belts know that it would be a temporary failure to climb all over someone if the confrontation can be avoided. As I read from an anonymous writer, now that I am a master black belt, I am able to run away from conflict with confidence. I like that. And don't let this black belt thing fool you. It doesn't make you superior. It doesn't make you grander or greater or tougher or even better in any way, really. But this idea of focus and paying attention to your own behavior and your own performance and listening to the sounds inside you and the sounds outside you and around you, they make a huge difference in how they translate into behavior and performance in all manner of living your life. So that's why I mention it in these these works, because it has done a great deal for me and my spirit in spite of everything that's happened. To expand on all that has been learned for my own benefit, it has become my special purpose to help others find their way to personal mastery as well. But the journey and the destination are much more complicated than they are simple. However, I've come to the conclusion for me that Nike said it best. Just do it. As it's been said, repetition is the mother of all skill. But I've also read that action is its father. So the question becomes, what's your call to action? What purpose do you live by? What compels you forward to find mastery and self-understanding? I think we are more apt to find our way to mastery when we are committed and living on purpose. Life can point you toward growth and development and purpose around a corner or up a hill in such a way that some of us could make a serious case for the phenomenon of destiny that the achievement was already picked for you, and you just followed through. Let's examine this concept, destiny versus determination. The French philosopher Voltaire offers a perspective for our consideration. Each player must accept the cards life deals him or her. But once they are in hand, he or she alone must decide how to play the cards in order to win the game. Oftentimes, I think that many of us have a more welcoming feeling toward destiny than the alternative to considering determination as the key to achieving amazing results with less than stellar beginning circumstances. Predestiny seems glamorous and metaphysical and spiritual and can even align itself with religious perspectives. The idea that someone or something is in control of our lives no matter what we do is somehow comforting to many of us. It may be in our best interest to highlight some of the differences between the two perspectives to come to a realistic conclusion. Some of the key differences are in regards to the individual's sense of purpose that some of us work from, and most importantly, the impact that individual drive and fortitude have on the actual course of history. According to the definitions of destiny, there is a fixed divine goal which will be attained no matter how much we strive for or against it. Human behavior or individual actions don't make any difference. Destiny or fate ensures that the future will turn out the same no matter what we choose or how we act. The phrase, you can't fight fate, pretty much sums it up. 
The key difference is, is that while destiny excludes us from influencing the future, determination does quite the opposite. In fact, it needs us to shape the future. As an example, think about this hypothetical perspective. Heaven forbid, suppose you die in a car crash tomorrow. According to the power of fate, if you are destined to die tomorrow, even if you avoided cars altogether, fate would nevertheless contrive some way to kill you off. Maybe you'd get struck by lightning or have a heart attack or whatever creative way you pass on. Then if you consider the alternative tempered with determination, let's just say you avoid cars altogether and you did not die that day. Your different actions could cause all sort of different consequences. Maybe you become a noted scientist and after years of work, you go on to cure cancer and live to be 100. In the final analysis for me, I am comfortable with the concept that in many ways, your actions determine your future. That's the way I personally understand determination to be. Additionally, one could make the case that past events in your life actually influence and determine your action. The heart of the matter is that notions of destiny being responsible for all that happens to us deprives us of an honest place in history. It implies that the same future would result with or without us and excludes us from the ordered sequence of events. Determination, by contrast, embeds us deeply within the ordered sequence of events, and we matter. At this point in my journey, as someone's leader and father, I have to think that I matter, so I can teach them that they matter, too. While fate may not be the whole story, I still think there is something to the concept of getting on the road to the place that is destined to be yours. That accomplished place where you belong and always have, but you have to work to get to it. Your name is already printed on the door to the room. You just have to climb the ladder to get to it. And whether you believe in God himself or not is not what I'm addressing here. This is not about trying to take away someone's belief in their dear God. And I certainly wouldn't do that. And I do. I don't not believe myself. But I do believe you have to take some circumstances into your own hands and work hard toward things and try to pursue things. And in spite of what's happened to you in the past or even what will happen to you in the future, just do your best. But set a plan, set a course and stay on track. I'm wishing you well. Thank you for checking in with us again for today's round 12. May you live as long as you want and never want as long as you live. May the worst days of your future be like the best days of your past. And may you continue to answer life's bell every time. Until we meet again, time!